0: Hello
1: everyone, welcome to another edition of The Last Defense. These are your hosts, Hanu Navi and Michael Belowski. Today we have on a very special guest. We have on Scott Horton from scotthorton.org. He's also a former host of antiwarradio.org, and he's had over two, uh, 2,700 podcasts along with um, many, many renowned people around the world talking about geopolitics, uh, politics, and any other political issues dealing with our planet that we're living on currently. Anyways, today, it's good to hear from you. Um, nice to have you on.
0: Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Okay, great, great. Now, um, Mike. Mike. We're going to go ahead today and talk about um, some geopolitical issues happening in the East Asia Pacific. So we're going to start with Korea, and we're also going to move into Syria a bit. I know you had a lot of you know, prime questions for that. And so I'm going to give the floor to you, and go ahead and fire away.
2: Sure. Well, as always, I'm coming to everybody from just about 20 miles from the border with North Korea I'm probably less than a mile from a huge military base full of tanks and missile launchers and whatnot. And frankly, nobody around me seems to uh, give a damn about what's going on up there. People here have been living with this situation of uh, threats and whatnot from North Korea for about three generations. So, Scott, um, what are people saying over there? You're in Texas, right? Right. Well, you know... I'm not sure what the man on the street thinks. TV,
0: of course, is split. On one hand, if if they can sell fear, they, they want to do that. But at the same time, they like making fun and saying, yeah, right, like you could hurt us. So the only place where the truth really comes through that it's the nine zillion ton gorilla versus the helpless little isolated commie state uh, – it only comes through when they're kind of bragging and playing tough guys. So they never really say, you know, nobody, nobody on TV news anyway, ever talks to the American people like adults and say, all right, look, here's the first 10 things you need to know about the situation. And so now that you understand the context, the real truth of the thing that happened today is this, right? They just, nobody talks like that. Not even Gwen Eiffel, right? Nobody on American TV news talks that way. It's all only really just recaps of what different politicians said about how fearful we should be. And, of course, if both political parties uh, have, you know, if their leadership wants to go with the scaremongering, then the TV news is going to go along with that. So, you know, I'm actually really happy to hear. Well, I'm, I guess I'm really interested. I sort of kind of want to interview you about living in Korea right now when you say that mm-hmm. that people near the DMZ That they're not overly concerned about this. Is that because they've just heard the boy cry wolf so many times that even in a real emergency, they're just dulled and, and, and can't be aroused to the danger? Or is it that they really understand? They have so much context of the actual situation that they know that a bunch of talk is just a bunch of talk and that it's not really going anywhere.
2: Well, I think it's a combination of both. Like I said, it's been about 60 years or three generations that they've been dealing with this, as you said, boy, who who's cried wolf scenario. And I think there's also just an understanding of the reality of the situation. Um, they're using old, relatively old technology from the Soviet era, I, I believe anyway. And uh, their military budget, I'm not sure if a lot of people are aware of this, it's only six billion a year. That's pretty far down the list in total military spending. Actually, South Korea is number seven, with I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they're over 20 billion a year. Japan is at like number five. They're way up there. The United States, whom they've been threatening to blow up these days, um, as most of you may know, has a higher annual military budget than the rest of the world combined, over 700 billion, and that's not including the black budget. So. It's if you put these numbers in perspective, it really State is Guard. like Yeah.
0: I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I was just gonna say yeah. I would think the Texas State Guard probably spends more than six billion a year.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think it gets exaggerated. I keep hearing over and over again that per capita they spend, you know, the most money in the world on their military, but I, I don't think their capita is very high. So <laughs> yeah, per capita yeah. sure, but overall it's not very high. Yeah, and,
0: you know, really, this goes, as far as American politics are concerned, this goes for a lot of the conflicts in the world, where it's like Carl Sagan used to talk about, um, you know, people without a good grounding in math and science, that they're just sort of floating and lost in the dark, and they're not really grounded in anything real, so if you give them something fake, they don't have anything, you know, really concrete to compare it against and to double check and make sure so if tv pushes a thing or like even you know the drudge report headline north korea threatens to nuke u.s but without the context that you know, with what boat are they going to float a nuke to the United States, right? They, they can't right. nuke us. They don't have a single missile that could even reach Alaska. If they can even make their plutonium atom bombs work, they can't make one small enough that they could fit on the head of a rocket for a hundred years, if that. And so, um, you know, if they can they can scare people i mean the, probably most the best context that people have for korea it's not even mash anymore which they never really gave any context in that show for years and years about you know who are the north koreans or whatever but the context that people have now is the new kind of remake of red dawn that was originally made around the idea of china occupying america which at least it's It's conceivable that in a million years they could make the troop ships and the planes to get the men here to do it. That they could have an army big enough to do it, if you know, a million other impossible things were true, and they were, you know, right. But North Korea, and that's only true because the Chinese, and I guess we're going to talk about this. They abandoned communism, so they actually have capital to spend on stuff like that. But Americans have the idea now, probably in great numbers, that you know, why not? Uh, why shouldn't it be the case that the North Koreans have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of long-range bombers and long-range paratrooper carrier planes that they could fly to North America? Um, oh, I forgot what I was going to say. The Chinese actually objected. Uh, And they were the financiers of the Red Dawn movie. And they said, don't make it about China. So they had to rewrite it and make it about North Korea, which took any of the slightest bit of plausibility right out of it for somebody who knows about North Korea. But it actually ends up probably doing quite a bit to sow misinformation and, and, and bad context, terribly inaccurate context in the minds of Americans that, hey, any nation state that can afford to manufacture the army that we saw in the movie Red Dawn could threaten somebody, could do something, you know?
1: hmm mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always just like a policy of barking dog politics here in uh, North Korea. It's like, it's like a gun. It's a guy that has a gun to their head, and they're like, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to pull the trigger, because it's pretty much political suicide. That's what they're doing anyway. You know, they don't really consider the long-term ramifications of threatening the world's largest military power, like... Would you pick a fight in a bar with the guy with the biggest muscles and the most training in combat? It just doesn't seem to make mm-hmm. sense, does it?
0: Yeah, except yeah. you and know, I, I think would, the yeah. know that the Americans well nobody everybody's really frozen in place, right? Nobody can do anything about it. If mm-hmm. you know, if the North and the South go to war, the North loses outright. But the South takes a real hit yes. while the North falls. And so, and neither side wants that. We got American soldiers and, and uh, naval personnel and everything stationed there. And so nobody really wants a conflict. So, from, from the young dictator's point of view, it's probably pretty safe to go ahead and threaten Obama all day. It makes him look good to his own population, uh, just like our government needs a North Korean boogeyman to protect us from. He needs an American boogeyman to protect his people from. Uh, that's where, you know, all state power flows from fear. And then, I don't really know very much about this, but I've read about faction fights between the Communist Workers Party and between uh, the military and how the, the new young dictators, aunt and uncle, want him to lean toward the Communist Party and away from the military and how maybe this is a way – all this chess beating is a little bit of a way to appease the military as he – Tries to tilt not so much away from them, but also toward the, the Workers' Party while not getting killed in coup d'etat in the process, that kind of thing. So I think that probably is a lot of what's going on here on the North Korean side. And then, of course, Barack Obama, he loves killing people and he loves threatening to kill people. So, you know, flying nuclear bombers around and beating his chest and holding naval exercises and these kinds of things are, you know, pretty much par for the course for him. Although, he doesn't really have to go much further than that for his own domestic constituencies either. So I, hopefully, you know, this is just a big theater and it's not going to go much further than it already has.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I, and thing, I would add there might be, or go ahead. Oh, sorry. I just mm-hmm. want to make one other point on, um, you know, for the Chinese over here, you know, they don't want any geopolitical implosions because say for instance, North Korea does commit suicide and you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of, you know Im- you know, immigrants and um, refugees streaming out of the out of the country going into the Liaoning and the Jilin provinces over here in the north what I mean the northeastern provinces of China that's gonna affect one of the poorest parts of the country and then on top of that that's gonna create immigration problems that are just off the charts so anything that leads to any kind of stability is going to adversely affect South Korea, China but um, maybe Geopolitically, it'll probably be advantages to the United States, in my opinion. But South Korea cannot handle the, fl- the influx of refugees coming into the country because they're already dealing with their own economic, you know, issues, especially dealing with the fluctuations with the dollar and the and uh, uh, South Korean won, and um, trying to, you know, advance their economy. A lot of these countries. On the South and the north of north korea they 're trying really hard to develop their own internal you know um, progress and to deal with their own internal problems so that 's one thing that I can touch on a little bit later. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's a very interesting point. I was actually going to ask you about the reports about the Chinese military massing on the border. Is that just to keep North Korean refugees from crossing the border? And yeah. they're not threatening the North. They can make a phone call if they really need to impress the government of the North to do this, that, or the other thing, correct?
1: Yeah, they're, they're the benefactor of, the nor- of North Korea. They're their only last ally. You know, they're only real ally in the world. And they've been giving mm-hmm. them... Um, you know all sorts of money benefits, internal, um, you know infrastructure development, things like that. You know they've been working with um, some of the miners that work in North in North Korea, and they've been giving. You know they've been trading somewhat, but amassing the troops along the border. Yeah, that's just to kind of hedge any kind of risk, in my opinion. So say for instance uh, there is a major conflict that comes out. Yeah, it would keep the tr- it would keep the immigrants from coming in. It would keep um, any kind of troops from storming in or any kind of problems. Also, you'd have to, you know, take into context the American troops that would probably, you know, pose a threat because that may be an advantageous time for any kind of false flag or any kind of um, invasion into this uh, fragile part of the country. You know, it's not right, like. Well, if-
0: that- In the last war there, right, was the Americans had the mandate from the U.N., not that that's necessarily legit, but anyway, they had the mandate to protect the South, and they went ahead and tried to invade and conquer the North, and that provoked the Chinese into intervening and pushing them back down to where the DMZ is now.
1: Right, right. And, you know, during the days of uh, communist China, like during the days of Mao— when they were fighting this war, you know, their military wasn't nearly as advanced. You know, they were working a lot of times with Soviet weapons. But this time, I think, you know, China is trying harder to advance their military so that they can protect their country a lot more because uh, war is just not the same beast that it used to be, especially in the times of uh, World War II and the Korean War.
0: By the way, do you guys mind if I ask, are you both just English teachers over there or or what's got y'all living in Asia?
1: Uh, Mike, you can go first. <laughs>
2: okay. Well, I am I was working in New York City, and I met my then-Korean girlfriend, now wife, and we have a son, and so that's why I'm here. I do teach English, though. That's my day job. So, uh, yeah, that's. I've been here about four years. So, Hanul?
1: Uh, for me, I'm studying here on scholarship. I'm doing a PhD here, so I'm hoping I can get that done right, <laughs> because it's going to be in Chinese, but... Yeah, I'm studying, like, different socialist mm-hmm. movements around the world, and um, yeah. I want to try to formulate some plan for, like, uh, development of third-world countries, especially African nations, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, know, I it, guess it's the best place to come to do that.
2: <laughs> and let's clarify, I'm in Korea, and Hanul's in uh, China, so he was right. in Korea, though. That's how he met.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. So Yeah, that was going to be my next uh, question, is how you guys knew each other.
2: Yeah. Oh, okay, and I had one more comment on what we were just talking about before, um, if, if fighting were to break out with North Korea. I think there would be a lot of defections. I've heard, and I got a BBC headline right in front of me, about um, North Korean soldiers shooting each other to get across the border. Now, this this is not unheard of. They have two rows of soldiers, one with the guns facing out towards South Korea... And another row of soldiers with the guns facing in to keep people from running across the border. And the reason I'm pointing this out is if there was like a heavy war to break out, I I wouldn't be surprised if a good percentage of their infantry, I know they still got the artillery and the bombs and so on, but a lot of their infantry might just make a run for it, you know, holding their white flags and whatnot. So it's just something to think about. Next, I
0: attacking is the number one uh, way to centralize authority and and loyalty, mm-hmm. too. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Have you noticed, though, uh, I've been looking at like, some of the soldiers when they do their marches and stuff. You can see how gaunt they are. And there's been issues with like heating during the winter. A lot of times the soldiers don't have enough heating or materials to keep their houses warm. And um, they don't have enough food. They have to ration all, their, um, all of their um, food products. So a lot of them look pretty gaunt. It seems like they've been having more issues with morale. So any kind of provocation that they can make would help to boost them around, to keep them in the military. Because the Juche philosophy actually says that, you know, we have a military vanguard that's going to, you know, um, drive forth all the policies of the nation. And so they're trying to keep that ideology going, but I think it's such an outdated ideology, it's like they're not even taking into account their context in the rest of the world. And it's just, it's failing. That's one of the reasons why I think North Korea is failing, is because they're not moving with the times, and they're not even deciding... How they can build new relations you know with a with a globalizing world you know
0: yeah it's a tragedy yeah. the entire the entire situation with North korea is a is, uh, you know, never mind for all the different reasons that it is the way it is, but just what it is and the poverty and the destitution. It's not, I don't know if it's a proven fact or not, but I know that it's plausible when we hear stories about people eating their own dead children and that kind of thing in North Korea, they're a communist state. And, uh, and that ultimately means famine. And we heard those same kinds of things out of uh, China during, um, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, all that too. That's what starving people do. This was when Stalin starved the Ukraine, the same thing happened there. People are reduced to their absolute worst. Absolutely. Um, because they can't buy and sell. They can't own things and they can't you know, decide how much they value something else and how much they're willing to trade for it. And so they yeah, just And, and,
1: and that's just, why Deng Xiaoping was such an enemy to Mao Zedong. He had been imprisoned at one point you know, during the transition, you know, during the latter days of uh, Mao Zedong's rule. You know, a lot of people respect Mao Zedong because he was kind of a political leader that united 50, what was it, 52 to 58 nations of people, which is a difficult thing to do, especially in like, um, you know, such a massive country as China. But... People more, you know. People also appreciate Deng Xiaoping. He allowed people to have private property. He allowed people to do things, you know, to buy and sell, to own businesses, to start having more and more. You know, he helped to raise the standard of living for a lot of people here in this country. And so, um, I think that China had to realize, like, in order for us to survive as a country, we have to have policies that move in different stages. And that's one of the reasons why there's such a centralized government here. Is because they pick a vanguard of, um, you know, people in the CCP, in the Politburo, to advance the country in one step and then the next step, and then they have their five-year plan so that way they can find out what's happening with the outside world and they can plan and see exactly what they need within their own particular country, what security issues they need, and I can go further into that later with the 18th Congress, if you'd like.
0: Well, it's funny to me that, in a way... As America becomes more and more of a collectivist state and China becomes a lot more of a capitalist one, <laughs> they really are mirror images of each other in major ways. And for example, the real estate bubbles. Mm-hmm. And of course, America's dollar is the reserve currency. And so when the American central bank inflates, every other country has to inflate. This is what the Americans call a Chinese cheating and undervaluing their currency it's they're trying to keep up with us trying to cheat them right we can only cheat them so fast and it's harder if they're racing along with us cheating us back and so they complain about it but then as the austrian school teaches it's the inflation and the creation of all the new excess credit that leads to these giant bubbles and deformations and and this, the economy wide malinvestments where in America, you'd have, like, say, in California, valley after valley after valley of suburbs that nobody lives in. The only mm-hmm. people who own any of the houses, they only own them so they can try to resell them and, and make money off the top without working kind of thing. Speculation, land speculation, that kind of thing. Well, in China, they've got entire cities the size of Shanghai out in the middle of nowhere that nobody even lives in that just politicians with this funny money. Uh, have gone in and made insane investments that no free capitalist would have ever made with his own money or money that he's entrusted of others to, to manage. And so uh, they've got you know, China-sized problems in their real estate market uh, in, in some major ways. And there's a severe reckoning coming, and it's not from them adopting capitalism. It's from the last vestiges of socialism that they've held on to and the socialism and their currency. Right. And in their so much of their central planning, it, it leads to to economic decisions that no private actors would have ever made, even in the worst bubble. Are they gonna build a whole extra Houston that nobody
2: needed? I mean, Jesus.
0: <laughs> you know?
2: Right, right. Wait, let me let me clarify here. So they got whole like kind of cities and city blocks that are not occupied or relatively unoccupied. Oh, yeah. I I would
0: hate to ever give credit to CBS News, but even uh, it was Leslie Stahl did a thing on 60 Minutes about this recently. But there have been quite a few reports about this in in, um, uh, the Financial Times and other things over the last couple of few years where there are literally entire cities that have been built on nothing but real estate speculation. where there are no businesses. There are no occupants of the condos of the. I mean, it's absolutely insane. It's you couldn't believe it. I mean, go and look at it. It's on the 60 Minutes Uh website. They did a a treatment of it only just two or three weeks ago. Yeah, actually, I wanted to to mention something. Span times a million. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I wanted to mention something. Uh, Daily Mail has an article about that. China's ghost towns, new satellite pictures show massive skyscraper cities, which are still completely empty. It was published, um, it was on June 18, 2011. They talk about that. Um, if I can, I'll I'll get a few of the names of those cities. Um, but, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to butt in.
0: Yeah, no, it's all right. I'm sorry. I'm just kind of going off about, you know, I've never been to China. What do I know except, you know, some of this journalism I've consumed. But oh, it just seems to me there are a few lessons here. Like China needs even more capitalism, and the Americans need to internalize a lesson that – that china the big scary tiger is actually a paper tiger just like the united states is and that they've got their own problems before they're ready to conquer the whole world like the north koreans in that stupid movie well, you know they got I mean, like
2: thousands Americans of riots get convinced
0: right? of all kinds of dangers that ain't real
2: yeah they've got like thousands of riots every year right the, the farmer rebellions and people obviously upset about their quality of life you know working hours a day suicide nets alongside the apple factories where they make the ipods a lot of miserable people who are upset you know
1: so yeah one of the things um there's one area it's the Zhengzhou um new district resident uh, residential towers like there's uh properties in the jiangsu province the completely empty cities um And I think they just do it oftentimes, you know, to put that on the spreadsheets for every annual year, you know, they have like, oh, we have to have 8% growth. One of the major um, debates that I recently heard about on CCTV was that they were talking about how can we make this um, country go from quantitative to qualitative growth instead of focusing so much on 8% growth each year. Or nine percent growth each year, we need to worry about focusing on the quality of the products that we make. You know, dealing with the housing issues because the last thing they need is anything economic. When you're dealing with number two in the world, you know, and number one is you can see is well on its way out or is having a lot of trouble. Um, and then you have the number two country in the world. They're at such a fragile state that anything geopolitical that happens, anything economic that happens, anything that happens um, with public dissent they're going to focus on that automatically so that they can fix the problem, you know, sometimes through, you know, brutal means or by trying to put their um, resources into solving the problem. So I think that China has to be wary when they start creating these cities like that. I've even taken the train and, you know, you can drive by and there's lots of industrial complex cities and a lot of places where it looks like there's barely any people there. You'll see only a few cars driving around. And, um, you know, that's one thing that I think they should focus on, yeah, they have a lot of people and they want to generate a lot of revenue, but planning the economy in such a manner is going to be dangerous in the long run. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Okay, go ahead. Right,
2: yeah, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. Well, I want to shift the conversation back to North Korea a little bit. I want to ask, speaking of China, by the way, who who's pulling the strings on this regime there? Because as, as you may have heard, I mean, these guys... Uh, Kim Jong Un and his father also are kind of notorious, like Playboy types. They like their alcohol and woman. and um, I guess Kim Jong Un likes to play Grand Theft Auto in the basement. And uh, <laughs> I-, I don't think they're really pulling the strings over there, you know, so to speak. So, and we talked about the the uncle and aunt. I think so, but who who like outside the country, China, the U.S. I think you could make a case that. Both sides, NATO and the Shanghai Corporation, have interest in keeping North Korea a threat. Um, do you have any comments about that or speculation?
0: Sure. Well, you know, the amount of influence that the Chinese government has over the leadership of the uh, North Korean Communist Party or military or ruling family or whatever on any given day, I can't really comment on that. I mean, I would have to – I think – Generally speaking, it seems like North Korea is their Israel, and they're kind of stuck with them. And so if that's actually a good analogy, you see how much control we really have over our satellite over there in the Mediterranean. Those things can be a little sketchy. As far as America preferring to have a North Korean communist isolated enemy there rather than something else, I think you're absolutely right about that. And and the proof is in... The last you know decade of policy there where the the south korean regime had their sunshine policy and it was very slow motion working toward um you know reunification but not even that i mean just getting along and 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 uh, breaking the ice and of course opening the office parks on you know for workers to be able to have an excuse to cross a border on the other side and these kinds of things uh, trains going back and forth uh, uh, families uh, in limited to limited extents allowed to visit, on, you know, across the border, and you know, these things are progress. Never mind for the stupid, evil governments, but for the people of the two Korean states to be able to, you know, uh, interact with each other, associate with each other, as they will. Uh, so all that was good, and then George W. Bush completely, deliberately ruined all of that, and said that peace on the Korean Peninsula will always take a back seat to the nuclear issue, which he made an issue. Uh, you know, I don't know if you want to sit here and try to do the the story of what happened. But Basically, when Bush took office, he bullied the North Koreans into going ahead and leaving the deal that Jimmy Carter had made under the Clinton administration and Warren Christopher had made, that the Americans never even really lived up to their end of the deal, which was to give them a light water reactor and money and fuel oil um, but they still had stayed within the deal until Bush really just lied about them and added all these sanctions and threatened to seize all their boats on the high seas and all of these things and and forced them out of the nonproliferation treaty and forced them to say, fine, you know, if that's your attitude, then we'll go ahead and start making nukes. So that didn't even begin until the spring of 2003. And so uh, then from then on, he says, well, you know, they're going to have to, come and and kneel before Zod and and give up everything on their nuclear uh, issue that I want, all of my demands on the nuclear issue, that he's the one who made it a problem in the first place and refused to allow even, I guess, you know, to whatever degree intervenes to make sure that the South Koreans don't even, you know, that they must, uh, that they had to go uh-huh. ahead and break off any uh, negotiations or maybe they just provoked the North Koreans into breaking off the Sunshine a deal or whatever but um there was even one case where the south korean uh prime minister or president i forget which um was doing a joint press conference with bush and misunderstood him and said wait mr president you know through the translator mr president did i understand you correctly did you just say that we could talk with the north koreans about uh peace and the nuclear issue at the same time you know all hopeful like wow did i just hear you right and Bush said, no, what I said was we'll not talk peace until the nuclear issue is resolved, which, of course, it can't be because he's the one who made it the problem, et cetera. So, of course, what's really going on there is if Korea is reunified, then they have North Korea's nukes and South Korea's economy, and then they're an independent power uh, that America now has to deal with. And America's game mm-hmm. is hegemony, Pacific and over the entire planet. And so right now they have their balance of power as good as they can cut it anyway between Japan, China and North and South Korea. And uh, so why mess that up? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. From their point of view, it, at least uh, never mind You know what consequences might come were the Koreas to reunify. The only one that concerns them is any loss in American power and influence. And so that's their game. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, a lot of American soldiers would have to go home, not just from Korea, but also Japan and probably some other bases in the region. And, you know, I don't know how much you know about this, but the last time that the soldiers, that large amounts of soldiers were scheduled to leave Korea and Japan, that was when the Chunin boats blew up back in 2010 in spring. And again, I'm not sure what you've heard about this or what Americans have heard about this, but... Uh, as of 2011, about a third of Koreans doubt that was even North Korea that blew that boat up. And there's a lot of shoddy evidence that makes that case. Um, yeah, I think that do, was do you know anything do- like that? Yeah,
0: you know, I'm not the best on the details of it, but I think it was uh, the last I heard the subject left anyway. It was unproven that the North Koreans had done it. Mm-hmm. Although I'm not so certain about the, the motive there. You could be on to something. Uh, You know, assuming that it was the Americans or South Koreans responsible for their own kind of Gulf of Tonkin sort of thing there. In that, if they were drawing down during Bush under Rumsfeld, if we're talking, well, let's see, what year was that? I know Rumsfeld anyway. I don't know about Gates. But Rumsfeld's idea for Korea was let's draw our soldiers down so that it'll be easier to have a war there. So that they will hold less, you know, fewer American hostages. Um, you know, on the DMZ when we start the war. And so in that sense, boy, those Republicans, man, you know, when they start a drawdown, you got to be careful about cheering them on before you figure out what exactly it is that they're up to there. Maybe it was somebody who was keeping the peace who blew up that boat by frustrating their plans to draw down the level of American hostages. You know what I mean? Yeah.
2: Yeah. To be that Uh, cynical. Uh, mm Mm-hmm. What do you think of some of the new leaders in these countries here? I think every major East Asian country has a new president or dictator. Of course, there's Kim Jong-un, the new dictator in the north. In South Korea, we got Park Geun-hye, recently elected the first woman president here. There's Shinzo Abe, who's uh, cranking up the printing presses. We talked about inflation over in Japan. And also there's Xi Jinping in China, Jinping. which handles... <laughs> Or Xi, Xi, Jin, Xi Jinping. Yeah. So have you heard anything about these people besides Kim Jong-un, which, uh, who's obviously already in the news?
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I, uh, I don't know very much about her at all, but I've heard about uh, the new South Korean—I'm
2: sorry, was it president or prime minister? President, right? President—yeah, uh, president. Yeah, president um, Park Geun-hye, who's actually the daughter of one of the previous military dictators of South Korea— Gosh, his name's slipping my mind at the moment. Yeah, uh huh. So yeah, she's also a descendant of a previous um, dictator in South Korea. So, uh-huh. and as I
0: heard it, uh, I'm not sure if this is right, but I think her mother was assassinated by the North Koreans, and her father mm-hmm. survived attempted assassination. So she's got. Oh, uh, they. You know. Yeah, they I were both eventually assassinated. mm Hmm.
2: Yeah, her father was first. Her mother was assassinated during an attempt on her father, and then later her father was killed in a second attempt. So both her parents were killed. Yeah. Oh, I see. Uh, how, so how about um, this guy?
0: You, know, you tell me what that means for South Korean politics. It sounds like it probably means she has to be Mr. Tough Guy, right? Especially because mm-hmm. you know, women politicians, just like Democrats, they have all that extra. Uh, kind of incentive built in that they have to prove how tough they really are, uh, whereas a, uh-huh. a conservative is presumed to be tough kind of from the get-go until proven otherwise, you know?
2: Yeah, well, she's got both. She's, like you just said, she's a woman. She feels like she has to prove that she's tough. Also, she's with the conservative party. She would be what would be considered a Republican back back in the States. And right before the election here, there was that missile launch by North Korea, the one where they put the satellite up in, up into orbit or the alleged satellite, whatever, who knows what it is. And uh, a lot of people think that might have gotten her elected because it was like one of those 49, 51 percent elections, you know, where just a little thing like that in the news might have tipped it in our favor. So, yeah, well, how about this you know, guy? How about Oh, go ahead?
0: Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, you know, I was going to start to say all things being equal, right-wing reactionary types are worse. But then again, you know, a bunch of liberal uh, uh, panty-waist types trying to prove that they're not can be twice as bad. So who knows? You know what I mean? George, Bush, George W. Bush's big war in Iraq indirectly aided al-Qaeda to a huge degree. Barack Obama outright backs them in two wars, two smaller wars, but still. So which is worse? I don't know.
2: Mm-hmm. And we talked about inflation earlier in the conversation. The U.S. – you made a great point. The U.S. is printing all this money, and then they get upset when anybody else does it. How about Mm -hmm. uh, Japan? This guy Shinzo Abe, he he was president like four or five years ago. He resigned due to some scandals, and now he's back. And he's printing up the money over in, in Japan. Have you heard anything about that?
0: Yeah, but, you know, only on the kind of news consumer level. I mean, I'm under the impression, correct me if I'm wrong, if you know any better, that this is really the policy that the Japanese have had since, what, the end of the 1980s or something, where they're sort of going through what the Americans went through in the 70s, not so much in terms of the very high inflation, but in terms of the stimulus just never helping and yet them never giving up on it, right? The American economy didn't get anything like back to sort of healed until volcker raised the interest rates way way up high in the very late 70s and early 80s and forced the recession that they'd been inflating to prevent all that time and he bankrupted so you know all liquidated all the bad investments and a lot of good ones too and then let the economy you know let the interest rates fall again and, and let the economy get back going from there again whereas it seems like you know Assuming that this metaphor is is fair at all, I think it's, you know, maybe it's an analogy more than a metaphor. Anyway, mm-hmm. if it's fair, then um, the Japanese basically have never had their Volcker, who has come in to mm-hmm. give up on the stupid stimulus policy and go ahead and force the full recession and then hands off the economy and, and let it grow where it will and how it will. And so... You know they're in their their what now third decade of their nineteen seventies and list you know stagflation forever mm-hmm. and so I mean they're really just screwing themselves as far as you know nationalist political parties go and 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 governments go um if they want to compare their interests. To, you know, for example, the Chinese or the Koreans or anybody else, they're sacrificing themselves. And for what? For John Maynard Keynes like, or some some belief system that, that the Keynesians have any idea what they're talking about? And see, here's the thing, and people don't realize this, but Milton Friedman was a Keynesian. Milton Friedman and the Chicago School, that's just sort of right Keynesianism as opposed to left Keynesianism. Instead of the government inflating and, and intervening directly on the half of demand— they ought to deflate and and uh well or inflate but in a way that just benefits the people who already have money <laughs> and uh mm-hmm. and then uh you know the so-called supply side theory and trickle down and and this that the other thing but it all basically you know the only difference is that Friedman says you should have 3% inflation and Keynes says you know go ahead and have more if you want um but mm-hmm. that's the difference between right and left Monetary policy, as far as that goes, the Austrians don't have any part in that argument whatsoever. So I don't know whether they're citing, whether they're invoking John Maynard Keynes or whether they're invoking uh, Milton Friedman or their Japanese equivalents. But ultimately, it's the same inflationary policy. And it just proves, I mean, after decades, right, that uh, I mean, and believe me, I'm not the world's expert on Japan, but I've never heard anybody say, see,
2: it worked about Japan in all this time. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess it depends what the money's used for. What I think a lot of the money is being used for is these uh, financial speculation, uh, the kind of thing right. you hear about on Wall Street. The, these are kind I'm of. I'm thinking
0: more they, like they real wages true. and real employment rates and that kind of thing. Real cost of living and and what's mm-hmm. it like for the regular people. That's what really counts, right?
1: I did a question for you. Yeah, um, of course, uh, Scott. Um, I was reading the book In the Fed by Ron Paul, and, you know, he was talking a lot about the Austrian school versus the Keynesian ideology, and he was saying mm-hmm. that there was a correlation between um, printing presses, central planning, and um, war. Uh, do you see there's, that there's a possibly advantageous um, relationship between Japanese government um, printing more money and the possibility of funding their military expeditions in the future, dealing with the Asia-Pacific the Asia region?
0: Well, now, you know, I don't know about any military buildup that they've been having uh, recently. I mean, ultimately, central banking helps for war because central banking helps for all kinds of deficit spending. So, I mean, really, for all I know, they're digging holes and filling them back up again or they've got the same 10 battleships for the last 30 years or what. I don't know. I guess I've heard a little bit here and there about some modernization and a few new boats or whatever, but – Um, to kind of reconstruct the question a little bit, if they want to go off and invade Taiwan or retake (laughs) South Korea or or whatever the hell, that kind of thing, uh, recreate the old uh, greater co-prosperity sphere, then yes, they're going to need a central bank, absolutely, to fund (laughs) that military. Because otherwise, see, basically they can raise your taxes, but only up to a certain point, or you're just going to stop going to work. Right? I'm not going to work just for you all day. You know what I mean? You're, there's a certain percentage. I don't know if anybody can put their finger directly on the number, but there's a certain point where you tax me anymore and I'm just going to buck and, not, and you're not going to have any income to tax at all kind of thing. right? Mm. And so then I can borrow money from China, but you know if I'm trying to invade China, then that can be problematic. right? So then option three is the printing press. And in that case, you just have the central bank create new currency, or new credits in the computer to buy up the government bonds, and that's the bookkeeping trick whereby the government can create new money to spend in the circulation on themselves and most often for militarism. And by the way, I just interviewed the great Bob Murphy from the Ludwig von Mises Institute about this very subject uh, last Friday. Uh, and uh, we went through, and he got the charts from the St. Louis Fed, and we went through and tracked the monetary policy through World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, the Reagan military build up, the, the Clinton NATO expansion, and and uh, Middle East occupations, and the War on Terror, and whatever else I skipped in there. Uh, for for each and every one of those wars, Korea is a slight aberration. Uh, Because they were cutting spending in so many other areas, and they really did just wage it from the air on the cheap uh, compared to the other wars anyway, relatively cheaply. They didn't have to inflate that much for the Korean War. But otherwise, to to look at a map, a timeline of America's 21st century wars – and, and overlay a chart of American monetary policy, why, there's your artificially low interest rate and your new increase in the monetary rate lines up perfect every time. No mm-hmm. doubt about it. What's going on there?
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Okay, any, you know, any other questions?
0: That's my favorite question to answer, actually, so you're welcome.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I have another
2: question, Um what, what about, I just alluded to financial derivatives, um, Warren Buffett calls them financial weapons of mass destruction. This is what you hear about a lot on Wall Street, like uh, credit default swaps, mortgage backed securities, that kind of thing. Um, how much, how much have, you, have, you been, have you been reading up on this stuff or, or hearing about, because I think it plays right into this whole financial discussion?
0: Well, I think mostly I would have to plead ignorant on the matter uh, as far as, like, real specialties. I think, you know, I can still mm-hmm. comment on it in this way. There's a there's a movie that you guys may have seen called Inside Job, uh, narrated by Matt Damon. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's about the financial meltdown. I don't, have either of y'all seen
1: that? I've heard of it. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs>
0: I haven't seen Fine. it.
1: Okay, it basically, like
0: if you took your mother jones liberals and let them do their very 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 best job i mean with real i forget who was the actual journalists you know behind it but um and i don't mean that in a bad way but i'm saying if you just take kind of a mother jones liberal progressive kind of take on the world and you but you give them real resources and you know real sharp teeth uh, uh to help them with the With the problem, and you set them loose to make a documentary about all of these bankers and all of this fraud. From that point of view, it was pretty much perfect. And the only thing of it was, and to me, it was this huge elephant in the room. Yeah, but where are they getting all the money? Because the whole story is if you take a Wall Street full of bankers and then you hand them trillions of free dollars. What kind of intricate scams do you think them and their lawyers can come up with, right? Like, that's basically what the story is about. That's where the
2: derivatives come in, I think, yeah.
0: They're not going to spend it on the real
2: economy, yeah.
0: Right, but it's just
2: like, you know, housing
0: in Las Vegas— uh, if you take the bottom end of the same bubble, or, I don't mean the bottom end of the sine wave, but I mean of the people participating in the bubble, the guys swinging the hammers and, and doing the real estate trades down at, at the consumer and, and, uh, and uh, house flipper level or whatever, they're building apartments and condos in Las Vegas that nobody could even live in. They're just ridiculous. They're not even really even made for people. You could keep pets in them maybe or whatever. They're just there to take up the space and to be a thing that hopefully I can turn over and turn over and turn over again and make some money kind of thing. So in other words, if they were taking all the money and they were funneling it all into – Plant stores, or whatever, then you would have plant stores hiring fancy lawyers and to figure out ways to make futures markets in garden equipment or whatever in some fancy way where they get to run off with all the freaking money. Be- you know what I mean? But the point is, where are they getting the money? They're not getting it from people who worked hard and saved it up and then invested it in something, let someone else loan it out and pay them an interest rate. They got it by waving a magic wand, worse, by waving a gun of police power that says we can do this. We can monetize any debt we want and we can spend it on anything we want. So in other words, not, um, this is in no sense, like from any left point of view, no one should consider this to be an apology for the criminals on Wall Street. Let them all do life in prison for whoever defrauded anyone. And they participated in a game and they broke – Every kind of law in letter and spirit in every way and defrauded helpless people and tricked municipalities and and teacher pensions and everybody else into investing in their shoddy products, and they're they're horrible. But – It's still all the government's fault. It's still all the central bank's fault. Most of what they did was legalized from the top by the Federal Reserve, how much money they're allowed to keep on reserve, what their overnight interest rates are with each other whatever. And so the whole thing is a rigged game. And so to me, like watching the Matt Damon kind of liberal Democrat explanation, it was really perfect. I mean, it was it was you need that level of cynicism against the capitalists, right? And maybe even against capitalism, that's fine. But just, boy, oh boy, if you know anything about central banking, it's the one gigantic thing that gets left out and unmentioned that puts the entire rest of it into a different conflict uh, 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 context. You know what I mean? mm
2: mm-hmm. Now, now, how do we deal with the central bank? Because it's a private bank now, I'm sure as most people listening realize. Uh, do we, Can we nationalize it? Do we just get rid of it? What do you think?
0: No, you get rid of it. I mean, it's already nationalized in a way. I mean, they say it's private, but really, you got to understand, if they had named it the central bank, then the American people would have never let them do it, right? They had to call it the Federal Reserve System so that they could pretend it was a system. And so they put one in San Francisco and one in St. Louis and one in in Fort Worth and what one in New York, but really it's a central bank just like in Europe, just like the American people didn't want. But all banks have to be members of it. They have to buy stock in it. They're not allowed to sell their stock in it, so it's not really their property. It's just sort of the the form of their legal fiction that they're all participating in. Um, And then the board of directors is all appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. The open market committee that makes all of the decisions and they use police power to enforce their decisions so i think it's really a misnomer that they're private it's important to note you know just what interest the private banks have and that includes publicly traded you know profit driven banks have over the central bank and over the government um, because they're certainly you know, full partners in the enterprise. I don't mean to play that down, but I like to play up the government role in it, because the real point is that they've got police power. And so what they say goes because they say so. It's not a suggestion. And so that's where all the mischief comes in, because if you had competition between banks – You can do business with the Rockefellers if you want, but I'm here to tell you you're a damn fool because they're going to go out of business the next time there's a little bit of a hiccup in the market. Whereas my guy over here, he doesn't give you as much of a return, but he's a lot safer bet. And so if you're – you know, the wise money is to do business with him instead, and then the market will discriminate uh, which bankers are worth doing business with and which aren't. See, the problem is – well, actually what's fun is we all learn the same line of BS in school. About this when we're kids. And so really it's pretty easy to correct. You know they always say well there are runs on banks. Before the central bank. They created the central bank to stop the run on the banks and whatever. To be the lender of last resort and all that. But they always want to pretend like history began in 1913. Just like they always want to pretend that history began on September 11th. They want to pretend that um, for some reason it's off limits basically to question. Well why were there runs on banks? Why were there panics before the central bank? Was because the banks were acting together as a cartel like the central bank and that were helping cover each other's bad bets and loaning out money that they didn't have and participating in this fractional reserve inflationary fraud. And it's basically just Bernie Madoff writ large. And so the House of Cards collapses every once in a while. Well, instead of outlawing House of Cards building, They institutionalized House of Cards building from now on in the form of the Fed. And now the rule of the day is make bad loans. We'll cover you. And so it's on. If you're a banker, you're on welfare. You have the permanent hookup like a IV of straight drugs to your veins. And there's no reason to ever stop. It's free. So go hog wild. Go ahead and invest in building an entire valley in California that nobody's going to live in, you know, because you're going to turn around and sell it. And if the whole thing goes bust on you, don't worry about it, because Alan Greenspan and uh, Ben Bernanke have your back. Even if the Congress doesn't, right? The Congress has your back up to 800 billion dollars. The Federal Reserve has your back up to 16 trillion. So by all means,
2: go hog wild. No, what happens if we, let's say we got rid of the Federal Reserve somehow and this whole movement succeeded, then how, where does the issue of credit come from? Does it come from just the next biggest banks in line, from Wall Street, or how do you think that would play out? Well, I'm not you know, certain. What I would
0: like to see is all the brand-name banks that we have now go out of business, right? I, I, I assume, perhaps incorrectly, but I assume that because – the Chase and J.P. Morgan and Citigroup and, and whatever these – the big household name banks now, uh, Bank of America, whatever. Since they've needed this world empire, gigantic, bazillion-dollar central state to prop them up in business all this time that they'll do us all a favor and get right the hell out of our lives as soon as the national government is no longer in the position to save them. And then we can get down to doing business with people who are worthwhile businessmen. I mean – You know, people buy and sell and trade all kinds of products all the time and goods and services all the time with people that they trust, people who they can build a personal relationship with, a banker who wears the kind of vest and monocle that commands respect and trust as opposed to, you know, Mr. Flyby Night with the loud promises. You know what I mean? People can make those decisions about all kinds of things and including uh, where they do their bank business from. And then where real credit comes from is from savings. It comes from people deferring, and again, you know, as an economist, I'm a great anti-war guy. I mean, I'll defer you guys to, to uh, the Mises Institute All-Stars and whatever for most of these questions, really. But um, capital comes from savings. It comes from uh, pleasure deferred for a higher return later. You know, I could spend all my money partying now, but I want to, you know, I'll, I'll instead invest some of it in peace of mind for that I'm going to be able to take care of myself later, too. And in fact, I'll do without some of it so that you can go and, and invest in your new project as long as you promise to pay me back plus a little bit and that kind of thing. And, and that's where real capital comes from. And you see how the incentive there isn't that. You know, all of a sudden, as long as I'm loaning you real money that I saved up, that now all of a sudden I'm a genius and I'm never going to make a bad bet and I'm never going to make a bad mistake. It doesn't mean that. It just means I've got an incentive to try really hard to make a good to to make a good bet and that I, the incentive, the pressure sure is on me to internalize the lessons for my mistakes as soon as possible, etc. Whereas, of course, if I'm gambling, if I have a license, not just I'm gambling with somebody else's money, but I have a license to go ahead and gamble with somebody else's money, then how much do I really care how sound of an investment it is? As long as I can make it look good in the short term and move on, then fine. And so um, that's where what they call the... The cluster of errors comes in, a society-wide malinvestment. How can you get millions of businessmen to all make the same bad decisions to invest in projects that the real capital is not available for? Well, by lowering the interest rate and making cash for sale artificially cheap, it makes it seem like there are excess savings in the economy now that are ready to be consumed on new projects on and, and, you know new capital investments to create you know new consumer products down the line and, and then it's just a game of musical chairs because it's a lot more dollars representing wealth than it is real wealth and so eventually the bubble pops and some people a lot of people are stuck without a chair when the music quits playing and then of course they fall really hard and break their spine on the ground
1: Yeah.
2: Well, uh, I guess it's about an hour. Um, I wanted to talk about Syria, but I guess do, do you have any more time, or should we give uh, yeah, some I,
0: mean, I don't know what, what you guys' limit is. I'm fine if you guys want to talk a little bit about Syria. I, I guess we didn't really plan on doing central banking that much, but I love the subject. Oh, that's it's so fine.
2: Wherever the conversation goes, it's definitely a core part of the conversation. So, and, we'll anyway, try to give you a I, I guess of Syria, mm-hmm. if you want. Uh, Okay. Basically, Basically, yeah. I don't have a lot of time, but brief comments. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: I'll just say that when America invaded Iraq, they gave the kind of southeast of the country over to the Iranian-backed Shiites from Baghdad to Basra. But all the land uh, that they called the Sunni Triangle uh, there—that's sort of lawless land now. The central government doesn't have much control of it. And the Sunni-based insurgency that grew up in resistance to the American occupation and their most radical wing, the Al-Qaeda in Iraq crew, they've basically taken their war on to Syria. And for the last two years, America has backed their efforts to overthrow the, in, in serious case, Shiite-backed Baathist dictatorship of Bashar al-Assad. And the whole time, they've been doing a really great job of crying that they don't want to back al-Qaeda. They're trying to back every rebel except al-Qaeda, except for somehow all the weapons and money keep ending up in the hands of al-Qaeda. And when we say al-Qaeda, it doesn't mean that Zawahri really tells them what to do every day, but it does mean that they use suicide bombings and they cut their prisoners' heads off and they're determined to create an Islamic state and that they consider anyone who's not their exact same brand of radical Sunni cut your head offism is an apostate deserving of death, which means everybody else in Syria is completely screwed, which is why the majority of the country actually still backs their horrible police state murderer dictatorship because at least it's better than the suicide bomber lunatics that the Americans are backing and why? Because Syria is the enemy of Israel, not even the enemy of the United States. They've never done anything to the United States except torture people for Bill Clinton and George Bush on command. They're Israel's enemy, and so America is backing a regime change against them. Now, some say they've got cold feet and that maybe they don't really want to see Assad go, but they're happy to just see him weakened or whatever. But I think still you could end up seeing a big part of Syria broken off, and already Al Qaeda in Iraq has renamed itself the Islamic State of iraq and the levant and so it actually looks like the beginning of george bush and osama bin laden's ridiculous islamo-fascist caliphate that could have never existed in a million years if we were talking 11 years ago
1: now yeah, i remember or go ahead i remember syria or a partisan was talking about that issue you raised a really really you know salient point um there's the enemy that you know, who is Bashar al-Assad, and then you have the enemy that you don't know, who is the impending Al Qaeda, you know, dictatorship that they could put upon them, because Syria has essentially been um, a fairly secular society because they lived under the Baathist rule, but um, you know, losing that makes them lose even more freedoms and even turns them into something that happened in Afghanistan. You know, the people in Kabul in the 1970s had fairly. Um, liberal tendencies. They had a fairly, you know, burgeoning economy. And then um, under, what was it, Reagan, they wiped that all out using the Taliban. uh, That took over Kabul and then completely destroyed everything, completely destroyed infrastructure and turned it into an Islamic state that has not seen much prosperity, say, for like the opium trade. So that's something that they fear happening. You see examples from you around in other countries. It's like the last thing you want to do is become another example or a statistic in the geopolitical scheme. Now, um, what, do you, what do you know about that in um, relation to, like, the examples from Afghanistan and Iraq? Um, other things that you would like to add?
0: I mean, you skipped the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 1980s who killed more than a million people. It was, the Americans were backing the resistance to them, but the resistance to them, parts of the resistance to them, became our enemies. I mean— You know, uh, there's this great reporter named Eric Margulies, who I talk to uh, pretty regularly on my radio show, who um, he knew bin Laden's mentor, Abdul Azam. And in 1989, when the Soviets were still in Afghanistan, he told Eric Margulies, when we're done with the Russians, you're next. And Eric was like, what are you talking about? We're your friends. We're Uncle Sam. We're red, white, and blue. We're the USA. We love you. We're helping you fight the godless commie bastards. What do you mean we're next? And he said, you're evil imperialists, and you're imperializing Islamic land, and we're going to war with you. And to Margulies, this sounded crazy because he had only ever heard pro-Russians, pro Soviets call America an empire before, and he just never – he just couldn't possibly take that seriously. But – After that, he started really looking at the situation and, uh, you know, some of the things that he'd been a little bit blinded to before once he heard it in that light. And so it was no surprise to him whatsoever that, you know, when the Afghan war ended and all those Mujahideen, because it wasn't just Afghans, right? It was Mujahideen from all over the Middle East had traveled to Afghanistan to participate in the thing. So bin Laden took over Azam's group. I think some say killed him and took over his group. I forget You know, what's the latest on that? But anyway, and then he ended up merging with Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which was on the zawahiris group. And then these guys were looking for something to do. And they say, in fact, I read a Newsweek thing about this from a long time ago back, you know, contemporary account um, about how – or maybe it wasn't a contemporary account. It was a Newsweek thing where they talked about it later anyway, about how when uh, George Bush Sr. and um, James Baker invited Saddam to go ahead and invade – uh, Kuwait back in 1990, that Bin Laden offered his mujahideen services to the King of Saudi Arabia to go kick that godless infidel Saddam out of Kuwait, and the King of Saudi Arabia because he believed the Americans' fake satellite picture of the uh, Iraqi military amassing in the desert on the border ready to invade Saudi Arabia, uh, he went ahead and chose the Americans instead and invited them to put their bases on Saudi soil, on Arabian holy peninsula soil, in order to uh, defend the kingdom from this phantom threat from Iraq. And then, of course, there they stayed throughout the 1990s, uh, creating the al-Qaeda war, really giving bin Laden uh, recruitment shtick enough to recruit. You know, a, an army enough, which it didn't take much uh, to to wage a war against us in the form of the Kobar Towers attack and the embassy bombing in Saudi Arabia, the embassy attacks in in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and then the USS Cole. And there was a failed USS Cole-like attack where the dinghy sank, but you could count that as you know attempted attack anyway and then the uh, millennium plot the the lax uh uh, guy that just they got lucky at the border nabbing him in the year 2000 and then ultimately the september 11th attack uh that all basically was blowback from ronald reagan's support for the mujahideen warriors and 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 not just ronald reagan's support but working with the saudis and the pakistanis to create this anti-soviet army in afghanistan and you know this is always the case whether it's supporting Saddam Hussein or whether it's supporting uh the mujahideen um back in in Afghanistan then or in in Syria now the american democrats and republicans they are always too smart by half they always just think that they're Uh, you know the geniuses they have so much power they must have the wisdom to deploy it correctly and yet really it's just the three stooges and and they really don't know what they're doing except for day-to-day trying to patch up their last mess and move on and of course they never suffer any consequences for their actions so it might as well all be deliberate but you know i think if you had asked hillary clinton three years ago hey hillary do you think that we ought to support the suicide bomber Mujahideen Brigade in Syria against Assad? She probably would have said no. Like, of course not. What are you, stupid? <laughs> but then yeah. what did she do? In fact, ever since the war broke out, she said that would be stupid. She admitted that that was the problem and that she kept doing it anyway. And yeah. in fact, she resigned and leaked it to the New York Times that she had urged Obama to double down and back him even more. So,
1: Yeah, but it was you know, I mean, that I, same kind it, of a it, 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 zeal-
0: Generalizing the real kooks, but it, it never works out that way.
1: Right, right. It's that same kind of zeal that you saw in her eyes when she, um, she heard the news that Libya had finally been uh, bombed out. You know um, they finally killed Gaddafi, and then they further mm-hmm. move over. It's like, it just doesn't seem like the leaders these days have any foresight into anything that they're doing with this um, broader Middle East issue. It's like the same issues that happen in Libya. Happened in Syria. They've used the same strategy with NSDD 166, which was something we posted on the website about the Reagan administration's policy against fighting this, uh, policy on fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan using the local tribes and militias. And it's just, it's almost like let's deal with the immediate problem now. We're not going to think about five, ten years down the road how this is going to come back to bite us, like you were talking about. It just, you know, it's one of those things that always baffles me about US geopolitics whenever they fight wars.
0: Right. Yeah, you know, when I was younger, I was much more of a conspiracy theorist, but I've just watched too long about just how stupid these people are. I mean, they sure are evil schemers and plotters, but that doesn't mean that they ever really know what they're doing. You know what I mean? And I think, you know, um, like you say, the 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 war in Libya is a perfect example where Gaddafi goes on TV and goes, look, man, NATO's picking the side of Al-Qaeda against me. Are you sure this is what you want to do, guys? And... He was telling the truth. That was what was right. It was Gaddafi was, you know, he ran a, a police state. He was a horrible guy, but if he served one purpose in the world from the American government's actual interests point of view, he's good at keeping al-Qaeda down. That's why Bush let him back in from the cold. Well, it was made a nice little PR stunt back in 2003 or 4 to pretend like the Iraq war had one, you know, good consequence by, you know, And he'd been begging to come back in from the cold for years. But anyway, uh, Qaddafi, Kami Qaddafi, was good at keeping al-Qaeda down. (laughs) And so what does America do? We – fight for the Mujahideen against him. And now they've spread their war to Mali, where they hijacked the Tuareg's rebellion, which the Tuareg rebellion was they had been working for Qaddafi. And they went home to Mali with all the guns after losing, but brought their guns with them and went home, and they decided autonomy wasn't good enough. They wanted to secede from the south. Then the jihadists came and took over their war and tried to march on the south, which ended up provoking finally the French war that's raging there now. And of course already Mujahideen are turning up in Darfur and uh, and then uh, the, we got soldiers from Chad intervening so now this is turning into a whole war of the Western Sahara over this thing. And as you say, you go back to look at that video of Hillary Clinton cackling at Gaddafi's death and it ain't even occurring to her that lady, you don't know who's who around here you don't know what's going to happen around here you don't even care what's happening around here you know what I mean? These things don't matter to her. Her. To her, it was a PR stunt. To her, she it looked really bad that America was so obviously the backer of all the dictators in the Arab Spring. And so they were trying to confuse the issue by saying, look, we're on the side of the rebels in this one. And Kanapi, yeah, we brought him back in from the cold, but we still don't really like him. He's not a family friend like Hosni Mubarak in Egypt or anything like that. He's expendable, so we'll just uh, you know kick him on out the door. And uh, and make it look, at least to the American people, I don't know if anybody else in the Middle East is is dumb enough to believe this, but at least the American people get to see the Americans taking the side of the, the downtrodden uh, underdog masses versus their dictator in one case to confuse them as to who's on which side of power in these different states in the region, you know?
1: Yeah, it's like what I like to call Nero syndrome, like someone's just mad with power, instant gratification in this particular moment you know, without thinking of the ramifications of long term policies. Now, I don't know. Um, I don't know how far the Mohajdin will gain power within the sub Saharan Africa. What are gonna be the buffer states that try to fight it along you know, fight against this. I think that once it starts spreading to places like Ethiopia, if it starts spreading over to places with the Al Shabaab in Somalia, that's gonna create even greater problems for eastern Africa. Um it's also going to create even more problems for Central Asia. You know, I don't know what what's going to happen, but if these guys get more power, it's going to be Afghanistan and Syria and Libya times I don't know how much. It just seems to me like my spider sense is tingling on this one. I don't know about you. <laughs>
0: Well, the Americans sure like having an excuse to intervene all over Africa if they can. You know one guy cuts off one hand or sets off one suicide bomb if they want to point at it for an excuse to intervene, they will, although you can tell that they're you know the the Iraq thing was so bad. Um, PR-wise, not that they care about the dead or anything, but just uh, PR-wise for the empire, that they really want to keep a very light footprint now, outsource as much of it as they can. They have the Ethiopians, the Ghanans, and the Kenyans occupying uh, Somalia for them right now, for example. Um, I think they're helping the French, and they have some, some joint special operations command types around in Mali. But again, a very light footprint, at least for now, uh, because they 're scared of the trouble that it 'll cause them back home if they get uh you know two up to their eyeballs, but it is you know American policy over there that they 're pursuing you know that 's being pursued mostly and um I guess we 're already seeing in Nigeria they are trying to take. The Boko Haram situation, which is, you know, they're a bunch of backwards Islamic radical reactionary types from the woods who are mad about the changing tides. And, and I'm sure they probably had their uh, very real natural rights violated in numerous ways as well, uh, provoking them. And so you have a conflict there. Uh, but the government of Nigeria keeps saying to the Americans, stop trying to refer to these guys as anything but themselves and internationalize them or, or connect them. To these other conflicts because you're just making it harder for us to really take care of them <laughs> so I think that might just be revealing a discrepancy in the motives there more than, more than just a tactical difference about how to respond I kind of think that for some reason For a long time, the Americans have had their eyes on intervention in Nigeria, and I'm not sure why. I mean the national government goes along with the Americans. I've never heard of any real big disagreements. Cheney even was almost indicted, right, for bribing them to go along with Halliburton on some stuff. They've got a great relationship with Shell Oil and other companies. So I don't really know why the Americans want to intervene there unless somebody's cousin has got the contract on these new Swift boats that they just want to – you know find a little substitute Mekong Delta somewhere to run around shooting people in, you know, and and they got that, <laughs> you know, other than, other than just pure militarism's sake. I'm not sure if there's any real interest in intervening there. But um, the good thing we have going for us here in this thing too, and I mean we as in human beings in the world, not the governments or the, the East or the West, but just people, is that these Al-Qaeda guys are horrible. And that's – even the Al-Shabaab guys who I don't even buy that even any kind of real substantial connection between Al-Shabaab and any of these other groups that uh, that they try to emulate them a bit. But these guys are horrible, and it's the same in Iraq as uh, – uh, during the war there as in um, Afghanistan and in Syria – uh, they're just really, really bossy, conscripting people's sons, and you know, bossing them around, and, and medieval sorts of punishments and these kinds of things. And a lot of times, you know, they're they're. You know, holy warriors for hire from somewhere else, but they can't go home. So they're not from wherever they're bossing people around. A bunch of Iraqis come to Syria and start bossing the locals around, that kind of thing. Uh, people don't take very kindly to that. And they really made themselves very unpopular in Iraq. They, you know, they had a relationship with the Iraqi insurgency where the Iraqi insurgency said, Yeah, you can help us fight the Americans and the Shiites. And then they ended up trying to lord it over everybody and create the Islamic state of Iraq and and conscript people's sons and boss them around and all this kind of stuff. And it blew up in their face, and the local Iraqis ended up turning on them and saying, actually, we're from here, you're not. And it's up to us whether you stay or go and whatever authority you have, not you, and put them severely in check with bullets and bombs and pretty much ended to a great degree, their role in the war, at least at that point, they, they're on the resurgence now. But um, I, they don't have much of a future other than they would pop up wherever the American empire goes. You know, you can look at Yemen right now where you've gone from, uh, you know, two dozen guys that you could possibly stretch and call Al-Qaeda to, you know, maybe now hundreds or, you know, the ruling coalition of a town is now calling themselves Al Qaeda, at least from time to time. And, and you've got people telling the media that every time you Americans do a drone strike here, uh, we're going to join up the rebellion against you. We never heard of Al Qaeda until today, but we're all part of it now, that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, that's the only real threat from these guys is that everywhere where we intervene, uh, they, you know, pop up. And, and you know, we create work for them. And that's whether we're fighting against them, like in Yemen, or whether we're fighting for them, like in Syria. You know, either way, we can't seem to help but, you know, benefit our enemies with every move. And by our, I very loosely define that to mean our government in shorthand here. Sorry about that.
1: No, no, it's great. It's great. Um, those are really wonderful, wonderful points. Like you, you touched on a lot of stuff that you know. It's great to get out there and get people to understand, and get them to notice. Uh, do we have anything else before we uh, wrap things up? Because I know uh, it's about an hour. I want to
2: back up. Oh, I want to back up what Scott was just saying. I got here in front of me. Uh, hold on here. T- uh, the London Telegraph and also Press TV have reported. And this was like two years ago, actually, when the Syrian conflict started. They are using, they are recycling these um, uh, fighters, be it al-Qaeda or not, the fighters that they're using in each country. And like you said, they see the pop-up everywhere the U.S. wants to go. And they did an airlift of 600 to 1,500 Libyan fighters from the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group into Syria. And I got more here from the London Telegraph. Do Hopkin Bel Hodge, I probably butchered that name. Uh he yeah, Hakim al mm-hmm, Yeah, he's yeah, one he of the
0: had- leapers. He was actually kidnapped by the MI6 and the CIA and brought to a dungeon beneath Bangkok, Thailand and tortured, and then was sent home to Kami Gaddafi and tortured for four years before being released and then uh, turned into a hero in uh, Obama's war of two years ago. And now, geez, I kind of hate smearing the guy as an al-Qaeda warrior, even though he brags that, yes, he is indeed a veteran of the Iraq and Afghan wars against the United States. Now he says, hey, can't we all get along? And he's got a lawsuit in civil court in London england about his the mi6 role in his abduction and torture okay. and so yeah. at least for and i don't know everything about bel hodge but from what i've been able to tell he's not on a rampage cutting off people's hands and acting the madman he's actually playing this thing really cool for a for a mujahideen warrior who's just inherited
2: a state or at least a big chunk of it anyway mm-hmm. yeah i have here he met this is the London Telegraph. He met with Free Syrian Army leaders in Istanbul on the border with Turkey. So yeah, these these guys are appearing everywhere that that we go, that the U.S. and NATO go. But anyway, um, this one oh, three. there you go, helping out. I didn't. I guess I had missed that he was personally helping out
0: uh, with the Syrians in Turkey. That's interesting, and and yeah, not surprising, but good to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, so just, I, I don't know. I just think. think about- if you if you picture a map, you know, Michael Scheuer, the former chief of the CIA's Bin Laden unit, on my radio show back in two thousand and five, early two thousand and five, he said, Look, man, we had Al Qaeda was a couple of hundred guys in exile in no man's land in Afghanistan and you know, the border region there between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Bin Laden wasn't even living at his farm, he was living at that Lion's Den hideout up in the mountains. And these guys were next to Uh, You know, completely impotent to do anything other than they had met these German graduate students, uh, you know, who had visas and could get to the United States kind of thing to accomplish their September 11th attack. But they were about as marginal an enemy as we could have had. And instead of obliterating the hell out of them and being done with it, we went ahead and uh, we, again, very loosely defined as our government, went ahead and, you know, did let them escape and turned Al Qaeda from this very small group of people into. Uh, a kind of brand name, a franchise, uh, an Al Qaedaism, and really kind of, uh, you know, spreading that that form of jihad around the region. And if you look at the map, you just think of the eastern border of Afghanistan, where even the Taliban were keeping their sorry asses back in 2001, right? And then now we we the U.S. government has basically scooped them up on the border of Syria and Lebanon and Israel (laughs) and Jordan. And for what? And to accomplish whose ends, right? I mean, maybe the Saudi king thinks this is advantageous to him. Uh, You know, Lord knows the Iranians are happy to see Saddam gone. But, and this is madness, if the actual enemy could be defined as the American people's enemy, the you know what remains of the al qaeda network in the world instead of everything else that our government wants to target you know and again the the syrian government's never done anything to the american people at all they're not our enemy at all and and they were loyal subjects and i don't mean in a hosni mubarak kind of way i mean they're they were not, you know, just the sock puppets of the Americans, like a king of Kuwait or something. But they did torture people for Bill Clinton and for George Bush upon request, uh, including innocent people on a regular basis. And so, in other words, they were cooperative with the Empire and not so much a thorn in our side, even. Um, you know, they they really have no legitimate even from the empire's point of view legitimate interest in targeting syria the way that they have been
2: well it's a lot of interesting information i don't know if there anything else you want to add or
1: uh no i think uh we can wrap it up here um i think this has just been a wonderful conversation i'm still digesting a lot of stuff that you know we've talked about so i'm i'd really um like to i'd like to again say scott thanks for coming on the show um it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and um, hopefully in the future you know, we can have more conversations.
0: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you might want to break this up in three parts or something.
2: <laughs> right, I was just going to say that we could
1: neatly, you
2: know, we we covered uh, obviously Korea, we covered economics, and now we covered Syria. So we got we got a lot of great material here. This is awesome.
1: Yeah, we can definitely like narrow it down to several subjects in the in the future if you're interested in. Um, Cover specific yeah, topics sure. on Syria, yeah. specific topics on china or South Korea North Korea anything so um yeah that's it. Sorry um, for hmm? going over uh, can you no that?
2: that's awesome that's what we want <laughs> we want oh, as yeah. much oh, materials as yeah. we can oh, get we it, so. I think it's good no, we need as much material as we can get, so we only appreciate that but uh anyway yeah we we're we're as Oh we're just getting started off here. Uh this is probably our we've probably done about a dozen dozen shows, maybe half of them interviews. So this is great. We really appreciate uh you helping us out here, get off the ground, and hopefully one day we'll you know be a full we can do full time. I don't want to I don't wanna be teaching English anymore during the day. So hopefully we can, you know, elevate this to the next level, but you really helped us out today
0: right on well good luck with your project it seems like a real good one so far
1: yeah thanks so much Mm -hmm. okay again guys that's um scott horton at scotthorton.org you can check him out on his podcast he has them pretty much daily or whenever uh throughout the week interviews a lot of guests has had again over two uh 2,700 uh podcasts and produces and publishes and just gets the information out there awesome guy Uh, So please check him out again at scotthorton.org. So this is, again, The Last Defense. We are signing off. Thank you so much for joining us.